0: Our text for this morning will be a portion of what we read together, um, particularly that portion that focuses on every human institution, the emperors and the governors that are sent by him. So we will read that again, 1 Peter 2, the verses 13 through 17. God's word says, "...there be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good." For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So far, God's word. After the sermon, we will sing together hymn 28, the stanzas 3, 5, and 6. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we as God's people are locked into a spiritual battle. It is a war from which we cannot escape, though we might wish we would. God's enemies press against the church, seeking to destroy her and seeking to destroy the inheritance that has been given to her. Earlier in Peter's first letter, he writes about the inheritance that belongs to the church, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's also out of the reach of our enemies, kept in heaven for all of Christ's believers. Now, normally we would think of enemies as being on the outside. Normally enemies attack, and we need to be defended. But there is, however, another kind of enemy from which We are under attack, another enemy on which we have to be on our guard. That is the enemy who is within the gates, the enemy who is with us wherever we go. That enemy is the sinful passions of our own flesh, those which make war against our soul, as Peter says. Our old nature, it constantly desires to overcome the new life that we've been given, and it it constantly desires to tempt us to pursue a godless and dishonorable Style of life. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 act as an introduction to this section of Peter's letter where Peter broaches the sometimes complicated topic of submission. We are willful creatures, it's just something humans are. Submission is not easy for us, even at the best of times, even under godly leadership. But these believers, they had to submit under one of the worst leaders known to history, under the Emperor Nero and his governors, who did nothing to protect the lives or the livelihoods of the Christians who were under their government. Yet Peter clearly instructs the church to fight in this spiritual war, to abstain from sinful passions by submitting to the authorities that have been given for the cause of God's glory in the day of his visitation. So I bring the word of God under the following theme, willing submission to rulers for the cause of God's glory. We'll see three parts. Submit because of Christ's authority. Submit because of God's will. And submit because of our identity. See Chapter 1, verse 1, right from the very beginning of this letter, Peter describes the foundation on which the church's hope rests. God's people are chosen and holy. They've been built up on Jesus Christ who rose up from the dead. He's the cornerstone of this church so that we may too have eternal life. The church is made up of all those then who belong to Jesus Christ. And it takes shape according to his design, him being the cornerstone. And its purpose is to declare the virtues or the excellencies or the perfections of God himself. Those who thus belong to Christ, they cannot belong to the world, cannot belong to two things at once, either we belong to Christ or we belong to the world, and yet we are still in this world, which makes us sojourners and exiles. We're currently living in a land that's not our home, a land that is not our inheritance. This land is not what we hope for after this life. But while we're here, our sinful passions, they make war with us. They make war with us in order to make us conform to this world, in order to make us belong to this world if it were possible, and thus share in its godlessness with the eventual result of the destruction of the believer's soul. Peter knows from experience all too well how sinful passions can arise in believers' hearts and make them lose sight of what's truly important. It was Peter himself who cut off a man's ear when Christ was arrested. It was rash. We may sympathize with his bold and immediate action in response to the injustice of Christ's arrest. But it was nevertheless in conflict with God's will and therefore sinful. Peter here instructs the early believers to live with a focus on God's glory, conducting themselves honorably for that sake For the cause of honoring God and bringing glory to his name. When Peter speaks about honorable conduct, it takes the form here of appropriate submission. Thus, he writes about submission from chapter 2, verse 13, through 3, verse 7, which we read before. And again also in chapter 5, verse 5. It's clear from these texts that when he speaks about submission, it's supposed to be voluntary submission to the human institutions. It's to be given voluntarily, willingly. Christians should not have to be convinced to submit to the government only after many, threats of, after many threats of fines and punishment, whatever they might be. The church's submission is not born of fear. It's not born of fear of discipline, but it is born out of a heartfelt desire to glorify God above all else. Thus, submission is to be freely given. It's not really natural to us, though, is it? Sure, we may be ready to say that everyone is of equal value and worth. Everyone is is just as good as I am, we might say. But that's a far cry from actually willingly submitting to those God has placed over us. It goes against our sinful nature to submit to leaders. After all, why should I submit to the laws of Canada and to those who enforce them? Why should I? Don't we all put our pants on one leg at a time? Why should they lead, and why should I follow? Even our prime minister is no different than any one of you or, or me. And our late queen, who many respected for her dignity and integrity in her office, was no more than human, made of the same stuff as all of us here today. And we are called to submit we are called to submit to people who are just like us. And it is all because of Christ, who Peter here calls the Lord. It is for his sake that we submit to every human institution, since every human institution has in turn been subjected to Jesus Christ himself. Peter says this later in, in chapter 3, verse 22. He tells us that all angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Everything has been put under Christ's rule, whether it be spiritual, angels, whether fallen or not. They've been put into subjection to him. Or worldly rulers and authorities, they also have been subjected to Jesus Christ, whether they recognize it or not. Whatever legitimate authority is exercised on earth is derived from Christ's authority. They belong to Christ, and they will answer to him. But God is not pleased if we refuse to submit to the authority that he has instituted, and he will judge our conduct in this regard. Maybe you can think back with me, or imagine in your mind, to first century Asia Minor. That's the country of Turkey, as we call it today. Nero's the emperor. Even he had legitimate authority. He was the legitimate ruler of the Roman Empire. His office had also been subjected to Christ. No doubt our early brothers and sisters in the faith would have been quite critical of his conduct, even during the early years that he reigned. They likely wondered why on earth they should respect and submit to a man of Nero's disposition, his infamous public and willful sin. Perhaps the easiest way to say it is that these believers weren't supposed to submit to the man for his own sake, but rather submit to the office for Christ's sake. They should do this out of reverence for Christ, not out of reverence for Nero. This means that willing submission is appropriate also to those who are outside the church. Just as every Christian is called to join him or herself to the church, to the true church of God, So, also every Christian is called to submit themselves for Christ's sake to their government. Maybe now it's a good time to remind ourselves what the Holy Spirit's goal is in this text. Whatever it is that we might think submission to the authorities might mean, whatever we think that might look like, it is a way of abstaining from evil fleshly desires, it is a way of abstaining from the sinful passions of our flesh. The government plays a key role in restraining our sin. We need a government in order to flourish. When a government's ability to restrain people is interrupted, then sinful behavior wakes up awfully quickly, doesn't it? The temptation here is to treat our heavenly citizenship, that we we belong to Jesus Christ. The temptation is to use that as an escape from the civil government's legitimate authority, thus giving our sinful nature an opportunity to sin where normally it would not. What the Spirit through Peter is saying here is that our holy calling as God's people actually gives us, it gives us more, and it gives us better reasons to submit to the government that we've been given. Now, maybe you can imagine you're a first-century believer, and you say, all right, Peter, all right, I can see that the emperor has authority that is itself subjected to and answers to Jesus Jesus Christ our Lord. I can accept that. I can accept that. But the emperor has no right to impose further government, governors on us. And for that reason, I will not submit to them. But Peter says Christians must also submit to those governors who are sent by the emperor. They, too, find their proper place in God's order for the world. Even though their office is not perhaps directly instituted by God, Peter nevertheless instructs the believers to submit to them as well. Their role is to punish those who are evildoers, or you could say they are to punish dishonorable citizens in the empire, people who actively work against or refuse to support the city in which they lived. On the flip side the governors are also supposed to publicly praise those who work for the good and for the for the honor and the upbuilding of the city in which they live Working for the good of the city that was an important aspect of social life in Peter's day It was impossible to ignore it impossible to ignore it when a citizen publicly improved the place in which he lived you see, Peter is certain that the Christian life, it's not intrinsically hostile to the governing authorities, even if they are pagan, even if they are evil. In fact, he believes that the good works to which Christians are called will be recognized as beneficial to society and therefore praised by the governors. I want to give a simple example just to draw out the point that that's being made here. Let's say in the cities of Asia Minor, you can pick any one of those that are listed in the beginning of Peter's book. Let's say in one of those cities, someone's, someone defaced or vandalized a public building. Whoever then took it upon themselves to sponsor or repair that building would have, would have to be praised by the local governor. Now let's say that whoever repaired the building happened to be a Christian. This happened to be a Christian. A choice is forced then on the governor either dishonor what everybody knows is honorable by failing to recognize the Christian and what they've done, or they must honor the Christian as upbuilding to society. See, a choice is laid upon them. A situation like that would, would give occasion to witness to the ultimate authority and the grace of Jesus Christ, allowing unbelievers to come into contact with the gospel and to see that the gospel has in it the true way for people to live. Remember that one of Peter's overarching goals in this section is that pagans see Christian conduct and glorify God on the day that he comes. When when we submit to authorities for the sake of our Lord Jesus, it brings glory to God, both now and when Jesus Christ returns. Willing submission is a witness to the authority of Jesus Christ. And when unbelievers see this, they are then given a choice recognize Christ's authority and glorify God already now by repenting or deny Christ's authority and God will glorify himself in judgment. Well, witnessing to the authority and the love of Christ is not the only reason that we willingly submit to the governing authorities. It is also the will of God to silence foolish talk by way of our submission. So we come to our second point, to submit because of God's will. The Apostle Peter, as an Apostle of Jesus Christ, desires that Christians refrain from being subversive towards the state. Instead, by honorable conduct or, or by doing good, as he says, they ought to be recognized as constructive and upbuilding to society. This ties in closely with what Peter, Peter understands as the will of God. Rather than taking an eye for an eye response to persecution, It is God's will that those who speak against the church out of ignorance be silenced by the undeniably good and honorable conduct of Christians. The prime example of this is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. We can find several references in this book to Peter's time being discipled by Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, we can read of the example that Jesus left for us during his life, but especially during his trial. Scripture says there that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How many times, we might ask, didn't the Pharisees speak against him unjustly, unfairly? How many times? They accused him constantly of associating with sinners, of doing work on the Sabbath that was dishonoring to God. They refused to recognize that he healed the blind and that he healed the lame. This all climaxed when they arrested him and brought him before the high priest. But Christ had conducted himself throughout his life and even at his trial in such a way that no one could be found who could levy a legal charge against him. There was not one. In Mark 14, verse 55 and 56, we can read of this. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Their testimony was not true. Whatever the outcome of that rather unfair council, everyone involved could plainly see that he was totally innocent. That much could not be denied by a single person present. It wasn't until Christ claimed to be the Son of God, until he rightly claimed to be the Son of God, that they finally accused him of blasphemy. Yet even though Christ, being innocent, was condemned as a blasphemer by his own people, he subjected himself to the powers that be, namely Pontius Pilate. He did, not, he did this not because he trusted the rulers... His own rulers of of Judea obviously could not be trusted, and the rulers of the Roman Empire could obviously not be trusted, but because he trusted God his Father. Even though the rulers were going to crucify him, an innocent man, he held his peace. It was shown in due time that it was God's will to overcome sin and death by Christ's work, which included his holy life and submission to the authorities. Similarly, for believers who follow this example of Christ, God's will is to silence people who speak ignorantly about Christianity by the honorable conduct of his people. Back then, Christianity was very new to the world. It was almost indistinguishable from Judaism for those who did not know both religions very well. To the Romans, they looked exactly the same. Many would find it difficult to understand what Christianity was all about. And Christians, they refused to engage in the public life of idolatry that led to drunkenness and immorality. This, of course, led to all kinds of suspicious misconceptions about the Christian faith. All kinds of things were said about the Christian faith that were not fair, that that weren't true, but nevertheless influenced the public opinion about Christianity. In the centuries following that, though, As many of us are aware, the church grew quite dominant, and the Christian faith became the the main faith in Europe. One could assume at least a rudimentary knowledge of the Christian faith. People knew the stories of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Jesus, Paul, and the rest. But we are increasingly finding ourselves in a situation that parallels closely Peter's time and Peter's day. Most people you meet don't even know the basics of our faith, they don't know anything about what our, what our terms and the things that we say mean, and they're given also a one-sided impression of the history of the church. Such foolish talk is then born out of ignorance. Ignorance. They speak bad of the church because they do not know. But this should not be allowed to continue without a godly challenge. Christians have something to say about all this by their conduct. Naturally, this will entail some pub- public engagement by the church, Maybe that was easier in Peter's day or it was more obvious how to do that in Peter's day. The church then was willing to do the regular works of charity that almost nobody else was. And that's how they bore their witness to the world. In our day, of course, governments are much more concerned with these things, so it might be harder to do that work in a decidedly Christian manner. But still, our culture today, I think we can all agree, is a very compassionate one, very sympathetic. They have quite the bleeding heart for people who are abused and people who are victimized, they do. For all that our culture is wrong about things like abortion and euthanasia and sexual ethics of every kind, we cannot deny that when someone is a victim of abuse, it is greatly upsetting to an awful lot of people. And there are opportunities there for us to exercise honorable conduct, conduct that is good for society, conduct that is upbuilding so that we might be a witness to the truth of the gospel to the authority of Christ and to the grace and to the love that he is willing to show. There are opportunities to serve those who cannot serve themselves. There are homeless shelters. There are organizations who provide food for those who have none or who have little. There are shelters for those who are abused. There are homes for the elderly, volunteering our time in the name of Jesus Christ for the good of the people around us. that helps our neighbors understand that the Bible, it contains the truth about how to live in a way that causes us to flourish. It contains the truth about what is good. Another way to take this text to heart is to commit ourselves to be active in, in our own neighborhoods. Our neighbors are the people we are most likely to influence. There are opportunities there for hospitality, for relationships right in our own backyard, you could say. Our neighbors can see how we live. They can see the good conduct of Christians in their own homes. Thus, even in the small things, like the relationship with our neighbors, we can actively work for the cause of the gospel in people's lives. Our neighbors will not be so quick to believe foolish talk about Christianity if they can see in our lives the blessing that that God's word has been to us. One last example might be how we speak about our politicians and government and our governments. It matters in this regard. Peter is speaking about being good citizens by submitting to the authorities. It's always a challenge to respect our leaders, always a challenge, especially when we disagree with their policy or disapprove of their lifestyle. Yet because it is the will of God that by our doing good, the foolish talk of ignorant people will be silenced, We need to keep the proper respect for our own government. It is simply not, according to the word of God, to speak in a way that dishonors the person that God himself has set over us. There is a proper attitude for political critique, and according to God's word, it is one of respect, and it is one of honor. If there is something for us to say about the government, if there is something that we need to say, then let us be quick to say it in prayer first, asking God to bring wisdom to our leaders and then after that, we will see what might be done. So, even though it might be harder to imagine how we can apply this text to our lives in this regard, we still have plenty of opportunity to obey God's will, silencing foolish talk by our good conduct. So, we come to our last point we submit because of our identity. Now, we come to a rather interesting part of our text. Because it says that we are to live as free people, free people even though we are servants, servants of God. And since we are servants of God, we are are free with respect to this world. We belong to God, we belong to the kingdom of God and to Jesus Christ. We do not belong to this world. Our citizenship isn't ultimately here, but it is where our inheritance is. We belong to God and are His people. Thus, we are, strictly speaking, free people with respect to this world. Now, this doesn't mean that we may disregard the authorities, as we've already said. Our confession summarizes Scripture in this regard. It says in the Belgian Confession, "Everyone, no matter of what quality, condition, or rank, ought to be subject to the civil officers, pay taxes." Hold them in honor and respect, and obey them in all things which do not disagree with the word of God. What we have is a kind of qualified freedom, a freedom that expresses itself in a particular way as God instructs in his word. One fellow said it like this, Christians are free with respect to the authorities, and normally this freedom manifests itself in respect and loyalty, submission and honor. Those who choose to disregard the authorities, they misunderstand the freedom that we have been given. In ancient Greek thinking, freedom could mean having complete mastery, complete autonomy over one's own life and decisions. That's what freedom meant to them. But that's a misconception. No one is a complete master over their own life and decisions. Everybody is a servant of something or someone. There are two kinds of people in this world, then, those who are slaves to sin and those who are slaves to Jesus Christ. Now, once we ourselves were slaves to sin, but God liberated us so that we might serve him instead. Now, God didn't break the chains of our slavery to sin and then say, "Say off you go. Let's see what you do now. You are completely free. You decide what you want to do. It's not what he said. That's not what he did, not at all. God rescued us from sin so that we might not live in misery that comes from service to sin, but rather we might live in blessedness that comes from service to him. He sent his son to die for us so that we don't have to enter condemnation, eternal death, and agony. He raised his son for us so that we can expect to live on the new earth eternally, glorifying God and experiencing blessings beyond even our most vivid imaginations. That's the good news that we get to live with every day. We get to wake up with it and we get to go to bed with it. That is our good news. So let's not turn this good news, this freedom, into a cause to sin. Planning to repent of our sins later while we still live in sin in the present doesn't work. God is not fooled by this. They cannot be mocked in this way. So the gift of freedom God has given us with regard to this world, it's not an excuse to revolt or rebel against the government. That's been done in the past, and to terrible effect. Think of the Anabaptists of the time of the Reformation. The Christians in Peter's day were also tempted to do the same. The church was very young then, and it was a very real danger for those churches to try and end their persecution by revolting against the government, taking control of themselves, and securing their safety by force. Perhaps that was a carryover from the Jewish sect of the zealots who, who sought to overthrow the Roman government in Judea. It's hard to say, but now these days, thankfully, Christians are not given to such revolutionary attitudes not with respect to our government. Yet we too must be on guard against such a spirit, such a spirit that seeks to take it upon ourselves what God alone can do. Since we are God's servants, we need to wait on his timing to do what he has promised. We are the servants. He is the master. We ought not to forget this. Although civil disobedience and political critique, they have their time and they have their place. We ought to continue in what we know is approved by scripture That is, the willing submission to the authorities under the rule of Jesus Christ. So Peter concludes this section on submission to governing authorities by laying out the maxim or the the encapsulating statement, the one that kind of summarizes it all, that Christians ought to honor everyone. Every person, by virtue of having been made in the image of God, ought to be respected. This instruction holds for everyone whom God puts on our path, even if they have differing views or lifestyles than us. Even if they live a lifestyle that we do not approve of or that we do not enjoy, still we must respect them. Brothers and sisters, remember, remember this, that you may be their only contact with the gospel. You may be their only contact, contact. and it may be that such people, they ridicule us and mock us for being Christians, but we know that God will silence such talk and bring glory to himself. Only let us hope and pray that God will end such ignorant talk by bringing these people to faith, that they may instead use their mouths to glorify God rather than curse those who follow him. Praising God and adding their voice to the number of those who call upon him. That is what we hope for. That is how we hope the foolish talk will end. Next, Peter lays out three further maxims that add to and go beyond what was just said. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The deep love that we have for the brotherhood, it goes beyond the honor and respect that we pay to all people. We do this because we, all of us, we have been born of an imperishable seed. We've been born of something that will not die. We will live together forever with all those who have been born with the same thing. The love that we give towards each other, it lasts eternally. It is a love that will be shared in the life to come as we all together praise God for the wonders of his grace. Thus, as we willingly submit to the civil authorities, we show ourselves to truly be servants of God by showing love to all those who also serve Him. But above all, we must fear God. Above all, we must fear God. It is ultimately this fear of God, this service to Him, this worship of our Lord and Redeemer that motivates the church's relationship with the state. Remember always that submission is done because of Christ and because of the will of God. These are the foundations of Christian submission, and we do well to focus on this as we navigate what can at times be a complicated, difficult relationship. We have to keep in view the spiritual gain that can be had by submitting to God's will, that glory be given to him and others may come to faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, Peter reminds the believers to honor the emperor. Christians do not need to unnecessarily antagonize the government, fostering a hostile relationship between the church and the state. Although the two may be at odds at different times and places, it's not in the nature of the case. It's not intrinsic to the relationship that it be hostile. Instead, the government's help should be sought by way of supporting the good of public life. While we do necessarily run into conflict with some political agendas that Christians cannot accept, such as abortion and euthanasia, as I've mentioned, our commitment to the good of our neighbors should be so evident that the only accusation anyone can bring against the church is that she followed Christ. Although Christian submission, it can often be difficult. God's word tells us that we can bring glory to him by keeping in mind Christ's authority, God's will, And our own freedom. Amen. Let's now rise if we're able and sing together. Hymn 28, stanzas 3, 5, and 6.